Welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts. There you can also join the conversation and read my serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story. Hi everyone, so today we are talking about how to layer stories with political censorship, and the space and place focus is going to be on the newsroom. Um, And so rather than talking about texts that are censored, we're talking today really about using elements of state censorship, um, which might be about book banning, or it might have to do with the media, or even um, what characters can and cannot say in your fictions. Um, And of course, sometimes these are the same ones. A lot of times those texts are the ones, because they are political, that are the ones um, banned as well. So I just want to start with the opening lines to Hertha Müller's The Land of Green Plums, which takes place um, in Romania during the Reign of Terror. When we don't speak, said Edgar, we become unbearable. And when we do, we make fools of ourselves. We had been sitting and staring at the pictures on the floor for too long. My legs had fallen asleep from sitting. The words in our mouths do as much damage as our feet on the grass but so do our silences. Edgar was silent. And it's a really beautiful novel um, and a quite an important novel politically and historically, I think, as well. Um, so if you, haven't, if you haven't read it, I definitely recommend checking it out. But I think what's really remarkable is the way that, um, although the story is not subtle in some ways, it's in its indictment of a regime, um, aspects of the narration like this are quite subtle in meaning and that silences also do a lot of the talking. And so you can think about that, not only in terms of censorship, maybe in other ways as well, that you could use gaps or silences um, in your own work to actually say, to say more. Um, and so this is where the, the discourse is it's about this idea of censorship and whether it's self-censorship or something being forcibly censored. Um, how can we include it in a text to get our reader to engage with it on um, a deep level? And, you know, that opening I just read to you, this is something that's clearly fiction. You know, it's it's about the thoughts of these different characters and the way they interact Um um, on a more daily basis as well. But sometimes those stories can tell us um, even more about the effects of political censorship and other things going on in society. So um, I have a lot of um, ideas about this related to uh, the chapter of the story I brought you last week where um, I bring Ivy, the protagonist, into back into the newsroom where she works in Hong Kong um, and these ideas of censorship there. So we'll be talking about Hong Kong a little bit today and that kind of setting and the way that this story um, fits into it. But we'll also talk about um, 
more at length about two books that take place in post-revolutionary Iran and post-revolutionary Egypt, so two novels, um, to look at how other authors are bringing political censorship into their into their books. And of course, you're probably thinking of 1984 right away by George Orwell. So I'm not going to do a lot on Orwell because, um, you know, even if you're not familiar and you might not be there, you know, there's loads out there that you can that you can read about political censorship or, or wonderful videos you can watch as well. Um, and, you know, this book is, of course, about a totalitarian regime. It's about propaganda, censorship, surveillance. Um, but it's also the way that it affects individuals on a deeper level. And that's why I think it's important to think of these ideas within specifically um, a fiction or a novel, even more specifically, as a kind of a space to play with the ideas and think really about how a single person can be affected and made to feel mad. Um, and so here's here's one quote from the book. For the first time, he perceived that if you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. And so this idea that you can, with censorship, even change people on the inside. It's not just um, what you hear in conversations or you see in texts that are published. It might also be the way that people think as a kind of self-preservation on different levels. Um, and a, a couple of other books that might come to mind, um, if you think of book burning, which is a very clear symbol um, and sometimes a literal way of of censoring. We've seen this at different times in history, cultural revolution. We've seen it by um, German Nazis during World War II. Um, we've seen it at different times. And we, so we see it in Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, perhaps most famously. A lot of people have probably read that in school. Um, at least in America. And then The Memory Police, more recently, by Yoko Ogawa, is a really beautiful book um, about, it's, it's from Japan, and it's about, um, it's about memories and the way that government can control, um, again, from the inside, even when there are external kinds of laws being created. I mean, it, it's a bit surreal in the way that it's making these laws, and it's a dystopia that's described that's not... Um, that's not a real Japan setting. But in that novel, um, books are also burnt at one point. So today, as I talk about um, Hong Kong a little bit more, and then those two um, texts that I mentioned, um, as well as a little bit of Foucault in there and his ideas about the panopticon, um, if there's something that you'd like me to pick up with a bit more in a couple of months, um, I'd be happy to consider how to maybe go more deeply with a text or, or go on a tangent that might interest you in this area. We have a lot of room to play. So, um, just let me know in the comments, um, on Substack, or you can reply email if you're getting uh, my emails from Substack at any time to let me know. Great. So if we just start by going back to my text, and I'm not going to quote from it today. You can go back to that, um, or if you're if you're not subscribed, you can just hop onto the Matterhorn on Substack and and check it out. So, as I as I mentioned this week, I shared Ivy's work for the South China Morning Post, um, and some of her interactions with the umbrella umbrella revolution. So both as a journalist and then more as a denizen of Hong Kong as well. So kind of 
playing the journalist and talking with people, but then she has um, a separate inner monologue that tells us what she thinks, you know, as as a person who's not just trying to um, get the information, get the facts um, to deliver to um, to the people who read her news. So the SCMP, uh, South China Morning Post, for me was an interesting paper to look at because although it doesn't have nearly the highest circulation in Hong Kong, um, because it's a, an English uh, printed newspaper, um, it's still quite an important, it takes quite an important role in terms of Hong Kong identity in that um, people outside of Hong Kong have greater access to it simply because it's written in English. And so it has a more global reach, even though it is a newspaper primarily focused on news of Hong Kong, even though it does deliver international news as well. So there were a lot of changes with the SCMP in the last decade or so. So in 2015, um, it was bought by Alibaba. And this is uh, this is just after the Umbrella Revolution. You have um, Al Jazeera reporting on a further connection to the Chinese Communist Party through this acquisition, even if, again, it's a small circulation um, compared to Chinese papers in Hong Kong, the SCMP has an, this international outlook. And so Al Jazeera and other news sources um, implied that Beijing was attempting to acquire it themselves as another kind of reach of the Communist Party. So at that same time, I mean, I personally knew a few people working there who who left, um, who cited this as the reason. Um, as a reader of the paper at the time, I did notice um, seemingly small differences in terms of even the way headlines were written or photographs were shown. Um, I would say to be more sympathetic to um, to China. And in 2018, there's an article I'm sharing with you from Stephen Vines, who is a contributor there, who um, he wrote that the SCMP had created propaganda against a famous case of a bookseller who was detained, who you may have read about before. Um, and there, there have been other journalists who work there who have spoken out um, against it. Now, the SCMP has also said that, um, you know, they didn't have a change at this point, that, you know, anything people are reading into it is just, um, is just that, is just reading into it more than anything. Um, but at the same time as the, as this takeover by Alibaba happened, the Hong Kong Free Press was set up by a, a journalist called Tom Grundy, um, and he set it up with some other former SCMP journalists as well as other journalists in Hong Kong. Um, and they claim to be impartial, ethical, and they're run completely on crowdfunding. And so the implication there is that they don't have like an allegiance to anybody who's paying their bills, um, which can be a problem in all sorts of newsrooms around the world. So during the Hong Kong protests, um, just three and four, three to four years ago now, um, a lot of media journalists were attacked during this time. And there's, there are different reports of this at times. Um, the police tried to cover up that they were the ones who had attacked the journalists and share different stories. 
Um, Hong Kong Free Press actually has a whole um, part of their website devoted to this coverage that you can look back on. Um, and of course, there's different sides to the story, but you can kind of look and decide for yourself what you think. And more recently, the SCMP, there are reports that China itself, the Communist Party, is attempting to take over the newspaper completely. So that would be an interesting change. Um, you may have also heard of Jimmy Lai of Apple Daily, um, which was a or the major um, news source for Hong Kongers. It's written in Chinese, so unless you speak Chinese, um, you might not have heard of it besides this news of, of Jimmy Lai, who owned the paper. Um, and he was famously jailed under the national security law um, because he is a pro-democracy advocate, although um, some of the charges were about fraud and, and other things. Um, but, you know, essentially he was very outspoken to be um, pro-democracy and in favor of the protesters. So the Apple Daily also ceased to exist in 2021. Um, they were no longer able to operate after he was taken in and um, the government came into their newsroom. There's some famous footage of them um, the police coming in and just kind of overturning everything in the newsroom um, at once, which is kind of emotional, I think, in some ways. So there, I mean, there's a lot more to political censorship in Hong Kong than than just the news or just the newspapers. But I think it's an interesting area to look at. Perhaps you can kind of trace it more carefully. Other kinds of censorship are perhaps harder to see more visibly. Um, they're not always published. Um, you know, things can happen behind closed doors. Of course, they can with with journalism as well. But we can actually view the trends in terms of what gets put in front of us, the reader, um, the consumer of news. Um, and around that same time um, of the changes with SCMP, I also noticed when I went back home to Boston in my parents' paper. They get the New York Times at home. Um, and I'm not sure if it was in the New York Times or the Boston Globe at the time, but I know the Times now also does this. There's an insert from the China Daily, um, which is run by and from China. Um, and it really shocked me because there were multiple reports um, claiming that China Daily was paying U.S. news outlets millions of dollars. Okay, so although it had been sympathetic, for example, to student protesters during Tiananmen Massacre, um, since then it's been more of a propaganda machine. Um, and also, for example, spread disinformation of the latest protests in Hong Kong, according to New York Times, courts. Um, Wall Street Journal, and several other sources. So, you know, why is this happening? Like, is it just a source for money? I guess, you know, um, journalism really needs money these days. And so is it is it that? Is it trying to have um, different sides of stories, including um, the other side to readers to allow them to decide on their own, a kind of really pure free speech is free speech. You know, the New York Times can criticize China Daily, but then also include it. Does that give them more credibility as a newspaper to say, hey, um, we're allowing you to read the other side? Um, and it's interesting because they, they each fight each other. There's China Daily um, articles about the New York Times 
and the problems they see with them, um, especially during COVID, for example, um, and the way that they reported it, and then vice versa, New York Times criticizing China Daily. But um, from my research now, um, China Daily is still being inserted in the New York Times. So how is this happening? And is there um, is there any kind of um, ethical uh, obligation to to ensure that not just maybe inserts, which is a kind of an advertisement, right? And other advertisements in the papers um, are impartial. Or are they, as being labeled as advertisements, can they just do whatever they want as long as these papers get their money? Um, so I just find it an interesting question. And maybe you guys have um, an answer. Maybe if we start censoring the advertisements, we actually do a lot more harm than good. So if we just stick with um, the dangers of journalism for a moment, um, you know, I mentioned that in the Hong Kong protests, there were several reporters who were severely injured um, and others who were at least um, pushed away from the scenes of protests so that they couldn't um, they couldn't actually find out what was happening on the ground. Um, so according to Reporters Without Borders, which is a global organization, there are an average of 80 journalists killed each year for their work. So that's killed. We've had a lot of further journalists who are injured um, while they are working. Iraq and Syria have the highest number of deaths. Um, and then there are other famous cases like um, the Charlie Hebdo reporters, the attack in, in Paris, and the Wall Street Journal reporter Jamal Khashoggi in the uh, Saudi Arabian consulate in Turkey. Um, we have famous cases of journalists also being detained in Russia, for example, as well as in the Philippines and a connection to political corruption there. But also in the U.S., where free speech is supposed to be king, um, there's been a huge uptick, as much as 50% just in the last few years, and especially um, during a lot of the protests, um, not just Black Lives Matter, but also other protests that were happening in 2020. Um, journalists were targeted by various um, different groups for their work trying to um, depict really what was going on. And instead, they were at the very least harassed and sometimes even hurt and in a couple of cases um, killed. So if people aren't able to get the full story and they see that, you know, even journalists are are getting hurt for trying to report the truth, um, they're going to start to worry about what they actually say themselves, you know, especially in the age of kind of constant surveillance. And even if there there aren't cameras everywhere, um, there are cameras everywhere because you've got um, smartphones everywhere. And sure, some of that can protect us and give us safety, but some of that can make us feel like we're also always being watched or listened to. And if we start to self-censor all the time, it might actually change who we are from the inside, like I mentioned at the beginning um, in that example from 1984. So in Hong Kong specifically, I mean, I remember um, even back in 2016, a friend of mine who was born in Hong Kong told me then that she was afraid to have any political conversations in public, not knowing who would be listening. She said that conversations, especially amongst locals speaking in Cantonese, had changed dramatically. So she felt she said, more comfortable talking about a situation in English with me in a cafe um, 
But still then she was a little bit nervous about it. And so it's interesting the way that people start to choose what they say, even though this was, for example, before um, before the laws were in place. So this was before the national security law, which didn't come until the 2019 protests um, and into 2020. But, um, but still there was that fear that somebody could get you, report you in some way, you know, not unlike the McCarthy era in the U.S. Um, and we've seen this in many places, but it can change people from the inside out. And I'll come back and mention Good Night and Good Luck at the end here. But if you know that film, you know, maybe you can think about the way that um, the the couple in the bedroom, they kind of talk about how it's affecting them personally beyond um the newsroom and beyond what they can say in public. So we also see um, in universities and schools uh, through that national security law in Hong Kong um, that people could get into trouble quite easily, um, whether they're talking about languages in a different way or asserting the Hong Kong identity as a unique one versus China. Um, or talking about historical events like the Tiananmen Massacre. Um, these kinds of things could uh, not just make one lose their job, but possibly go to jail. And there were so many changes to the, to the curriculum, um, so many changes to the ways of doing things in schools, that a huge amount of teachers and professors, this is um, in in all forms of school in Hong Kong have left the profession and some have some have even moved um, if they had moved to Hong Kong for their job or they're Hong Konger and they've they've sought um, refuge elsewhere. So I've got a really great video for you there that um, a former colleague of mine in Hong Kong shared with me. Um, it's about 45 minutes long, but it's really worth a watch showing you the way that um, schools are actually affected on the ground. And, you know, the the changes have been made so subtly in some cases that, um, and, and slowly, that it was hard to see this kind of overnight black and white, this is before and this is after. I think some people don't even realize, even if they have children in the schools, how much um, things have changed. And, you know, a lot of the changes have, of course, caused a lot of stress for teachers, you know, and some maybe don't mind. Some need the job, so they're just going to do it anyway. But then a lot of other ones um, have decided that they can't work in envir that environment and have left. So, you know, Hong Kong's not the only place this is happening. You know, look at Florida and all the book banning, not just the book banning, um, changes in curriculum as well. Um, and, you know, this is a place that, again, is supposed to, as being a part of the United States, have access to complete freedom of speech. And yet we have government censorship of what's being taught in schools, what kind of texts children are allowed to see. And, you know, that's shaping the people that they become, even though some might rebel against the censorship it still shapes their experience in school. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to see, I don't know if one exists already, but I would love to see like, um, say a, a novel set in a Florida school with maybe a young protagonist um, who's kind of navigating these changes. It would be, 
really interesting to see that viewpoint. I think you could do a lot with it. You know, and on the other hand, it could be kind of a backdrop to something else happening in your story. Um, you know, this is happening. It kind of highlights another tension um, in your book or gives us um, a different level of characterization of one of the characters who's talking about it um, in one way or another. So let's go to Iran now. I absolutely love this book that I'm going to share with you. Um, it was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize, um, as well as the Stella Prize. Um, but not a lot of people have to actually have read it. So I wonder if you've read it. It's called The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree by Shukafe Azar. Um, and she is an, she was Iranian. She's an Australian author who has sought political refuge in Australia, um, in part so that she can write about um, Iran and her experiences there. She talks about loving the culture and the place and the people of Iran and, and missing it um, immensely in her interviews, but needing this asylum because of the oppression there and the censorship there. And so this this book is just a beautiful, sad, tragic story um, of the 1979 Islamic Revolution. It's a family that flees Tehran, and it's told in the perspective of a 13-year-old girl who is dead before the story starts. So she's looking back, actually, on her execution, um, which is obviously quite tragic, especially because of her age and especially because of all that we see in her, all the tragedies of her family and all the beauty that's around her that's just kind of erased in some ways, but then it, it lives on through this book and it's celebrated in other ways. Um, so definitely, definitely read this book if you haven't already it moves into the surreal, as you might imagine, because it's told from a dead speaker. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, not, not but, some people love surreal literature. I go back and forth, but I don't think even if you don't normally, it doesn't take away from the story itself at all. Um, it really goes into kind of a dream and memory world um, more than a kind of fantastical. Um, and that surreal aspect, you know, is... It's in the sadness, but it's also in the beauty. Um, we see a kind of madness as well, which creates some of the surrealism. Almost like looking at what happened without surrealism is almost too unbelievable. Um, and so you, you almost need um, a deeper kind of fiction to tell the story, to make it feel real, which is clearly a paradox, but somehow it really works. And it makes me think a little bit of the style of Laura Esquivel and Like Water for Chocolate, although a very different story. Um, and there's also, as you might imagine, a lot of crossover of ideas from the nonfiction book Reading Lolita in Tehran by Azar Nafisi, which is a really um, gorgeous book about specifically about um, censorship in Iran um, and book banning in Iran. So um, let's take a look at a few just small sections of this book. If we start by looking on page 21, um, we have echoes of this kind of um, escape from university where censorship is happening um, in Hong Kong, as elsewhere, but just in this case, that when I'm talking about Hong Kong. And so on page 21, it says, 
Charrier, dad's second cousin on his father's side, who had a PhD in economics and was expelled from university for his socialist leanings during the Cultural Revolution, and now drives a long-haul taxi between Tehran and Isfahan, had, as usual, had an accident that had instantly killed his four passengers. This was the fifth time that death had been found loitering around dad's second cousin, but from what he had escaped unscathed. So um, we have these, these, just these mentions of what's happening in academia and university, even though the story doesn't take us there, to give us more of a background of how everything plays a part in this, um, in this real dystopia. And then we can look at the way that the news is also changing, um, changing facts for the citizens who read about it. So on page 80... She writes, contrary to what published, what was published in the newspapers, broadcast on radio and television, and even what was advertised on the 20-meter-high billboards on Balasar, Tahid and Englehab streets, many of the soldiers who had volunteered to go to the front were neither militants infatuated with spreading Islam, nor followers of the revolution in Khomeini. They were just simple-hearted, patriotic young men who didn't want so much as a centimeter of their country to fall into enemy hands. And so it gives us a different perspective to also consider, you know, the way that newspapers are used as um, a propaganda to tell us the motivations and intentions of large groups of people like soldiers. Um, and in fact, you know, the author is is imagining many different perspectives from within the story. And again, even if it's just mentioned briefly at this point, then the reader starts to consider the soldiers and and their role here. So, you know, I could imagine in a different story that you write, um, you know, one of these soldiers um, or that university professor might become a character actually in the story. So then we can look at citizen journalists as well. Um, and so this is what, you know, I meant about um, kind of surveillance being being everywhere when you have um, smartphones and citizen journalists. Um, often it was... Twitter in different revolutions um, recently, and we'll see kind of what it becomes in the near future. But on 238, she says, some of those still filming sadly shook their heads, stopped filming and left whispering, getting onto their motorcycles or into their cars. They hit the accelerator and sped away, hoping to be the first to post their videos on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And they're filming an execution. So, you know, the the really just awful idea of filming something so traumatic um, is usurped by its value in sharing the truth. But then at the same time, you know, are the people who are filming it questions, um, are they doing it to expose these problems or are they doing it to gain a kind of fame themselves? And then it says several people who hadn't stopped filming, including the young man who was opposed to killing her, turned off their phones after getting detailed shots of the bullet hole in her chest and her blood on the sand that stretched to the sea and mixed with the salty Caspian waters and shaking their heads, sadly, left. So you also see others then having this kind of um, realization that this isn't just a film, this is somebody's life. And so, you know, they turn it off and they see something, the natural beauty of the surroundings mixed with the terrible tragedy of this execution and this death. 
So finally from this book, I just want to share with you this short part that makes me think of Foucault's Panopticon. We can go to the Panopticon um, in a minute. And so uh, Azar writes on page 82, mirrors. Mirrors were everywhere, catching everyone off guard with a view of himself from every angle. Gradually, fear gripped all who, were, who worked there. Cries of terror could be heard day and night, calling for help out of the labyrinth. I'll just stop there because I think you get the idea that um, it's as if you can constantly be seen. So you're both within this maze, this labyrinth, um, so you can't escape. And then there are mirrors everywhere. So you're you're viewing yourself, you're unaware of who is viewing you, and it becomes this kind of panopticon, which is a kind of place with this conscious visibility where you feel you're always being watched, even if you don't know by whom or exactly where or how. Um, And so Foucault talks about this in his book, Discipline and Punish, um, in Panopticism, this chapter. So I'll link to you the chapter on JSTOR, um, as well as the book itself. Um, but it's about surveillance um, and where inspection functions ceaselessly so that we're always being inspected in society. Surveillance is permanent in its effects, even if it is discontinuous continuous in its action, is what Foucault says. And, you know, this, this sounds like um, a prison, which is what he's describing. But then Foucault also comes back to the idea that prisons resemble factories, schools, barracks, hospitals, which all resemble prisons. And so he's telling us that actually so much of society, um, you know, and he's he's writing this about, um, I think it's 40 years ago. He is, he is writing well before smartphones, but he's telling us that society is turning into a kind of panopticon. Um, and maybe it has been for a very long time, even though we describe prisons in this way. And I always think of The Circle by Dave Eggers when I when I look at the Panopticon, um, which describes a sort of, shall we say, Facebook-like um, takeover of the world where everyone is encouraged to share everything that they do um, and that nothing should be nothing should be kept secret. Everything is for everyone. And if you if you don't share everything, then you must be hiding something. Um, and that it allows us a kind of safety. So it's clearly a problematic um, way of viewing the world. But then at the same time, people would ask, um, you know, is it already is it already upon us? And how does that change us again on the inside, not just what's maybe censored on the streets or in public, um, even in a very free place, for example, if you're constantly being watched and you're constantly being um, amplified to viewers, to readers, um, are you really going to be yourself or not is the question. So I'll just read a little bit of a longer passage from Foucault now, just a, a longer paragraph for you so that you can just think about his ideas on a deeper level, even if you're familiar with his work already. I think it's nice to go back actually to his language. I know I often just kind of think of the concepts and yeah, okay, I got the concept overall. But if we go back to the language itself, um, maybe we can reflect on a deeper level. Okay, so Foucault says on page three of this chapter, this enclosed segmented space observed at every point in which the individuals are inserted in a fixed place, in which the slightest movements are supervised, in which all events are recorded, in which an uninterrupted work of writing links the center and periphery, 
in which power is exercised without division, according to a continuous hierarchical figure in which each individual is constantly located, examined and distributed among the living beings, the sick and the dead. All this constitute a compact model of the disciplinary mechanism. And then he goes on to talk about the plague, which I find interesting in thinking about the pandemic and the way I would argue um, the pandemic has made um, a society of even deeper surveillance. The plague is met by order. Its function is to sort out every possible confusion, that of the disease, which is transmitted when bodies are mixed together, that of the evil, which is increased when fear and death overcome prohibitions. It lays down for each individual his place, his body, his disease, and his death, his well-being, by means of an omnipresent and omniscient power that subdivides itself in a regular, uninterrupted way, even to the ultimate determination of the individual, of what characterizes him, of what belongs to him, of what happens to him. So, I mean, I'm really interested in that section more about... Um, the the plague as well and and disease and thinking about the pandemic um this manuscript i've been working when with recently it takes place in part during the pandemic and i've been thinking a lot about um nesferatu as well and the scenes of the plague there and the kind of fear that and control that's created and the way that it changes us from the inside but maybe that is a different topic to come back to at another time, maybe when I'm talking about that book later on next year or something. Um, but I'm sure you'll have some ideas about it. And I just want to move on then to a different book um, briefly before coming back to the newsroom. And this is The Thief and the Dogs by Naguib Mafouts. So Mafouts died um, in 2006, but he left us with um, a really beautiful oeuvre of literature and I've taught this book several times with um with high school students and they really love the writing as a a kind of an alternative existentialist text um maybe if we're not doing you could compare you could pair it with Camus but I think also on its own looking at existentialism in this text is really interesting so Mafouts is writing about a post-revolutionary Egypt this is about a thief who's just come out of prison um, and is a com- in a completely changed world. Um, now, the person who he had been like his mentor before has now married his wife and has his child. So there's this whole personal thing going on as well. But that mentor has also become the editor of a newspaper. And so we also see the way in this story um, that news is being controlled as a kind of propaganda and changes the way that people think, creating this sort of madness of individuals um and Mafus was a journalist um earlier in his life as well and so you know I, I think he's probably thought a lot about the way that journalism um can be used as a powerful tool in society so I'll just read a couple of short passages um so on page 34 Said is flipping eagerly through the pages of Al-Zahar Zara, sorry, until he found Ralph Ilwan's column, and that's his mentor. So I began to read while still only a few yards from the house where he'd spent the night, the house of Shikali al-Junaidi. But what was it that seemed to be inspiring Ilwan now? Said found only comments on women's fashions and loudspeakers and a reply to a complaint by an anonymous wife. Diverting enough, but what had become of the Ralph Ilwan he'd known? 
Said thought of the good old days at the students' hostel, and particularly of the wonderful enthusiasm that had radiated from a young peasant with shabby clothes, a big heart, and a direct and glittering style of writing. What was it that had happened in the world? So he's he's seeing the way that the world is being reflected in an absence in the news again. Um, it's not so much what is being said in these articles, but that there isn't something really being said um, about the world on a deeper level. Okay, and then just about 10 pages later on 45, Said says, I would be happy, without obvious irony, to work as a journalist on your paper. I'm a well-educated man and an old disciple of yours. Under your supervision, I'd read countless books, and you often testified to my intelligence. He, he, he's denied this opportunity to be a writer, um, you know, but it's interesting that I think, you know, Mafus includes the character that sees journalism, even despite of what he sees in the papers, he still sees it um, as being put on a pedestal, as something that um, can really be used to shape the world for good. So a bit later on, on page 111, we have a short, um, a short mention of newspapers. It's getting worse all the time because of the newspapers. Go into hiding, but forget about trying to get out of Cairo for a while. Don't the papers have anything to go on about but Said Maran? So the, the papers are talking about this criminal, Said, um, who's, who's telling the story. Um, and the way they're shaping the narration is kind of all-consuming. It's making him go. So on page 130, it says, What enormous headlines and dramatic photos. It was obviously the major news item. Ralph Ilwan had been interviewed and had said that Saeed Maran had been a servant in the students' hostel where he'd lived there, that he'd felt very sorry for him, and that later after his release from prison, Saeed had visited him to ask for help. So he'd given him some money to start a new life. It goes on a little bit, and later it says the papers accuse Saeed of being mad, craving for power and blood. Is this madness then? He asks himself. And so he feels like he is turning mad because of the accusations and the fake story, this fake news, um, which is now such a big catchphrase, right, in the, in the last few years, fake news and the way that it can be created. Of course, there's always been fake news, um, but there's more discourse about fake news, which I would say is a really positive thing, because at least we have the awareness to um, talk about it and try to investigate it when it is there. Um, and so the news actually starts to make him mad because the news represents this fake reality that's been created. Um, and even if he's one, um, even as one individual, you know, the book kind of questions if he could instead be the one who's sane and the rest of the world is mad. Um, and as George Orwell says in 1984, he writes, even if you are a minority of one, it does not make you wrong. And so it's a reminder that you alone, although there may be other individuals out there who are invisible and can't speak, um, they are the ones who, who still may be right. Um, and of course, there can be many, but because of this fear, this, this panopticon-like fear of surveillance, um, none of these who may be the majority um, will speak up. And this is how you create... Um, a totalitarian oppression. 
So I'll come back um, Thursday to talk um, more succinctly about how you can try to include um, these ideas or consider them um, in your own writing. And even if you're not writing a book that takes place under um, a regime that's that's oppressive, um, that's specifically censoring the news or books, um, maybe there are ways that it could be an interesting part of the dialogue in your fiction. Spaces and places. This is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. So today on Places and Spaces, I wanted to talk about the newsroom. Um, And the newsroom, I think, is such a fascinating place. I've been lucky to visit a few newsrooms just as an observer, um, not doing any work there. Um, And I think there's some really interesting on-screen depictions. I really loved that show, The Newsroom, um, the TV show from a few years back. I thought it was really clever the way it showed um, kind of the back and forth of journalism and this kind of um, looking at how to get to the truth um, and also looking at the power of journalism, as well as the changing shape of the media um, in the last couple of decades. And then there is Good Night and Good Luck, which is historical, looking at um, Ed Murrow and McCarthy. Um, This is George Clooney's film, Shawl, shot in black and white, about censorship and journalism. And I think it makes a really powerful case for the power of journalism and also the way that it can be suppressed. So the need for kind of bravery um, within journalism, even though it does um, it does have dangerous consequences at times to tell the story. Um, and another another one on screen that I think of right away is Spotlight, which is about um, the Boston Globe story um, where their special team, the Spotlight team, broke the news about the child sex abuse by Catholic priests in Boston. It was quite Um, a famous case, and uh, it was broken first by the Boston Globe um, before before there was a criminal investigation. And so director Tom McCarthy, who I think he's great, he actually appears in Good Night and Good Luck as an actor, as a journalist. Um, And he also did some other great films, like really kind of quirky and unknown, like The Visitor, which takes place in New York. Um, It's a really great film. Anyway, Spotlight, it shows... Um, the newsroom. And although they recreate a faux um, newsroom from the inside, um, they do have shots from the outside of the real Boston Globe, the former um, journalism uh, center. Now, I say former, and I think, I'm not exactly sure. I tried to find this out through research, but I couldn't find it. I think maybe this was shot after the old newsroom, which is just like at the ends of Boston, shall we say. It's not really in the city center because, hey, that's expensive real estate, um, or it wasn't before. It was then um, it was then moved to the center in much smaller offices, um, and the printing itself was then was then placed elsewhere. So at that at that time, um, I was able to visit because my brother was working there um, for Boston.com, and he still does um, work for Boston.com. And um, 
this is a this is a newspaper with long tradition. It's now owned by John Henry, who also owns the Red Sox um, and the Liverpool Football Club. But um, he keeps the he keeps the newspaper going even with very low profit because he believes in the importance of free speech and unbiased journalism, and so that's. Um, that's why he keeps it going. Um, maybe he's also hoping to make a profit. I don't really know. Um, but it was really an interesting place to go. You know, it was it was huge that we got to see the the printing press, which was just a beautiful um, machine. And it's just interesting to see the whole open layout. You know, I went there late at night. My brother at the time was like working on the late shift, um, or at least he stayed late. And, you know, then it was pretty quiet. But when things were busy, I'm sure there was like kind of yelling back and forth. And the idea with this open layout is that you could share ideas, you know, very quickly. Um, It was also a cool space because they had some like trophies from the Red Sox wins and things like that, which was pretty cool. But they were just in this back corner, which I thought was kind of strange. Anyway, a little quirk of the Boston Globe newsroom. Um, So, yeah, they moved downtown to a much smaller um, but more tech, high-tech place. And, you know, of course, it is downtown. So if something's happening in the city, it's probably easier to get around. Um, It was right near – it is right near Faneuil Hall. So if you know Boston at all, um, it's located in a pretty good spot. And for my brother, I mean, it was great to, like, pop out for lunch and meet friends and things like that after work. So, you know, that was convenient. But the newsroom for him has changed a lot since the – pandemic as well because I mean of course people were working from home for a long time and um, even now you know there's not a lot of money in journalism and so especially if you're a journalist not making much money you might um, ask to cut down on your commute and the cost of the commute um, and be allowed that freedom to work from home. So I, I was also able to visit the New York Times newsroom, but a long time ago, probably 15 years ago, when a friend was um, working there. And I mean, similarly, there's just this really open space, which makes me think that a lot of dialogue would just happen naturally. It also makes me think it would be really hard to concentrate. Um, and I had a chance to go to the Bloomberg newsroom in Hong Kong and um, also very busy, but it's something that I noticed were just all the computer screens. So, I mean, also um, at the other newsrooms, you know, many of the journalists had multiple screens going. But at Bloomberg, I think it was like at least three per person, you know, showing all these dif- this different data and figures. Um, and I thought, wow, this is like a lot to take in if you're working there. Um, I just, you know, it, it reminded me that it's these humans who have to process all this information and you know, I'm sure it can feel quite stressful at times because it's one thing if it's just kind of, you know, numbers and facts they're reporting on. And if it's something that's like really traumatic or really consequential and they're trying to make sure they bring all the information together in a digestible and meaningful and truthful way, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, and it's it's a very powerful thing to do. So I've linked an interesting article there for you about exploring innovative learning culture in the newsroom. 
um, by an academic in the Netherlands, Ornella Porcu, and it calls for um, innovation versus change in the newsroom today. And um, he describes that through research, he's seen that there actually is a lot of this innovation um, that journalists are actually adapting quite rapidly with new ways of processing and discovering information. But sometimes the management, he says, is not always aware of this or has a disconnect from it. And so um, the idea is that there needs to be um, more maybe follow through between the management and the journalists themselves. Now, an issue is probably time and money, which go hand in hand um, to make this happen. But of course, as things change so fast with citizen journalism, with digital media, with, um, you know, the changes in photographs representing um, what's actually happened, um, you know, the way that they can be falsified as well, for example, um, you know, there there are a lot of ethical concerns that need to be addressed, but there's also a lot of potential and possibilities um, that can be used to citizens' benefits. So, I mean, the way I see it, a healthy newsroom should really have different viewpoints. And so by having this kind of open landscape, um, you can idealize it as a place to discover truth. Um, and this is kind of what I was thinking about when I moved into the newsroom in my story. But of course, there are problems with the SCMP, the place that I chose um, as my newsroom. And, um, you know, it's it kind of brings up the question about reporters having, um, you know, considered angles of epistemology and ethics as they discover and choose whether to put, to even report something or not or how to report it. Um and I just think this is like a really ripe um, space to use in fiction or maybe even to think about different spaces that you consider um, dialogues and discourse and the way that truth is shaped within your fiction. Is it is it happening like in a newsroom? Um, are the characters kind of checking their sources, so to speak? Or are they just going along with what comes up in front of them? Do they have different perspectives in their ears? Or are they surrounded by people who think the same way as them? So it might just be a way to think more about like the evolution of a conscious mind um, in your story as well. Anyway, if you've got more to um, talk about in terms of the newsroom, I'd love to hear it in the comments on Substack. Um, and next week, we're going to be looking at... Um, the income gap. So a couple of serious topics. Um, not that I ever like hide from serious topics, but you know, we'll be getting into maybe more literary stuff in the next couple of weeks after that, or more traditionally literary stuff and talking about how to layer text in different ways. So good luck with your fiction. And I can't wait to hear more about um, where you're going with them. As always, I'll bring you a five-minute version of today's topic to help you get creative, and let's do this on Thursday. If you're not on my Substack page, please sign up for a free subscription to get access to all the links, multimedia, and a transcript, as well as to join the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Matterhorn today. 